This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics this week. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. I am really excited about this week's episode. So I had actually had a different topic in mind for this week, uh, but some things happened this week in international politics, particularly in the United States front, and I wanted to kind of deal with that first, and so I'll push off this week's planned episode to future episodes instead, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Kurds this week. Uh, So what we're going to do is actually something I've done, I think, once in the past, but it's pretty rare. Uh, So I actually did an episode on the Kurds, on who they are. Uh, It's probably been a year ago now. And so we're going to have that as a replay for the second half of this episode. But the first part of this episode, I want to talk about what actually happened, the current events that led to the Kurds being in the news again recently. And then after the commercial break, I will play that episode for anyone who doesn't really know who the Kurds are or why they've been important. And so the first half of this week's episode will be brand new. And then the second half will be that replay of who the Kurds are. So let's go ahead and dive into what actually happened just recently in current events. One of the big news stories that came out uh, late Sunday night, this would be a week ago Sunday, is that Donald Trump and the White House here in the United States announced that U.S. military forces in northern Syria were going to be pulled back and essentially giving Turkey kind of a, a green light on an upcoming military offensive. And we actually did see this offensive start on Wednesday, so just a few days later. Turkey launched a military offensive into kind of the northeastern quadrant of Syria with airstrikes and artillery fire. And in particular, the Turks are launching this because, in their words, this is a terror corridor that they are trying to destroy, uh, mostly which is run by a group called the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF, who operate in that region. They are led by Kurdish individuals. But Turkey regards several groups in that area, including the YPG, which is another group, the PKK, which is the Kurdistan Workers' Party. They regard both of these groups as terrorist organizations. And so essentially what happened is Donald Trump said that U.S. forces were going to stand aside, pull back, and essentially green light Turkey's move to attack these Kurdish forces led, led by the SDF and the YPG. And so this put the Kurds into kind of the spotlight recently because the Kurds have long been considered one of the United States' most reliable allies in the entire Middle East, really. Outside of Israel, the Kurds are probably right up there. If Israel's 1A, they're 1B in terms of our, our best allies in the region. And they've actually played some pretty key strategic roles in the campaign against ISIS in the region. Tens of thousands of Kurdish uh, forces have died alongside U.S. forces, fighting alongside the U.S. military in the fight against ISIS. And so a lot of people saw this as kind of a betrayal of these long-standing allies that we have in the Kurds. In the words of some, greenlighting a major genocide that the Turks could move in and execute against the Kurdish forces and against the Kurdish people. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this and kind of why Trump may have done this, but also what the effects are going forward. 
uh, because this is actually something that at least kind of nominally fulfills a campaign promise from Donald Trump where he had talked about pulling troops out of the Middle East and trying to end some of these wars that he claims were started by some of his predecessors. You know, wars that, you know, were started. We have troops in the Middle East from both Bush and Obama. But this actually highlights kind of a, a weird alliance that the U.S. kind of vaguely has with Turkey. Uh, Turkey is kind of this in-between state because they are part of NATO, uh, which means that they are formally an ally of any other country that's in NATO, including the United States, uh, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. But they have not been particularly friendly to the United States and to Europe over the years because of some fights to try to get into the EU. Uh, And also they have some enemies that the U.S. considers allies, namely the Kurds. So Turkey thinks of the YPG and the PKK as terrorist organizations. Uh, Now, the PKK is probably more readily acknowledged as a terrorist organization by other groups, but the YPG is essentially the group that helps run the Syrian Democratic Forces. And the U.S. actually formally backs the YPG, and we have given formal credit, including verbal and written credit, to the Kurds for helping defeat ISIS in Syria. But the Turks have this long-standing rivalry against the Kurds. They see them as kind of ethnic enemies, and they have actually gone on record as trying to, to wipe out the Kurds in certain regions. And so even though the U.S. has basically said, you know, we don't necessarily endorse a Turkish, Turkish operation into northern Syria, the fact that the U.S. armed forces are, are not getting involved in any way or standing in the way essentially kind of opens the door for Turkey to launch offensives against some pretty key U.S. allies that have been our allies for a very long time. As I talk about in the the episode that will run after the commercial break, the Kurds have been allies of the United States going back at least to Saddam Hussein and probably long before that. We'll get to this in a second, but they actually did have some say in World War II as they fought uh, on the U.S.'s side, although never together. They were in completely different parts of the war, but they were on the side of the allies the Kurds in particular became major U.S. friends when we helped liberate them from Saddam Hussein, who famously gassed and killed many of them in the region. And so the Kurds have been fighting on the side of the United States against ISIS for a long time and against other terrorist organizations in the region. And they are currently the largest ethnic group in the world that doesn't have their own country. So they are frequently fighting for their own land. And Donald Trump actually kind of hits at this on one of his talks recently when he's trying to defend his decision to back out. And he talks about how he says uh, the Kurds didn't help with with Normandy and World War II and whatever, but only really fighting for their land. And so he kind of uses this to defend his his actions. But I think this is a, a major misstep by Donald Trump. I've I frequently talked about him on this podcast, and I, I do think his foreign policy leaves a lot to be desired. This is truly abysmal foreign policy because the Kurds have suffered thousands upon thousands of casualties as they are probably not only one of our best allies against ISIS, but they are probably our most effective one as well. And the Kurds as well, going back even to World War II, as I kind of hinted at, the Kurds back in the 1940s were scattered across uh, the Middle East and were not particularly in any position to help us in the first place. But there were quite a few records of Kurdish individuals who fought in World War II. And this actually runs completely contrary to what we saw with Turkey, who back in World War II 
was not on the side of the Allies. They they claimed to, to support the Allies initially, but then switched when it looked like the Nazis were going to win. And Turkey actually moved by 1941 or so into a an alliance of sorts with Germany. With the, There was something in June of 1941 called the German-Turkish Treaty of Friendship. And so as Donald Trump criticizes the Kurds for not helping us at Normandy, even though they really could never have without even a nation state to call their own, Turkey itself has massive ties to the Nazis in Germany and the Axis powers in World War II as well. And so this is, I think, a very hypocritical stance for him to take. And as I've mentioned a couple times now, you know, there were individual Kurds that probably fought with the Soviets uh, against the Axis powers. Uh, they were scattered across the region. They're actually, the Kurds are made up of a kind of a group of different tribes and families spanning five countries right now, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and Armenia. But during the Second World War, but also even to, to this day, you know, there is no Kurdish state. Now, in modern times, there is what you might consider like a Kurdish government in certain parts of those countries, particularly in Iraq. There's something called Iraqi Kurdistan that's kind of operates semi-autonomously from the rest of Iraq. But especially during the Second World War, there was no way the Kurds could have helped us. Pretty much every time that we have called upon the Kurds, more in recent times, pretty much every president since George H.W. Bush, that's Bush Sr., has called on the Kurds to help fight some sort of common enemy in the Middle East, and they have answered our call every single time. Uh, the Kurds are a group that has consistently, actually they're probably one of the, the most consistent allies the U.S. has ever had, and so to justify leaving and abandoning them on the eve of a potential major military offensive against them simply because they didn't help during the Second World War is just, that's just an outrageous claim. Now, I wanted to take a little bit of a step back and talk about why he did this. Because as I said, this kind of fulfills a campaign promise about getting out of the Middle East and has been praised by, by a fair number of people who are probably more in the libertarian boat on this. The ones who say we should just be out of the Middle East entirely and, and kind of leave them to their own, uh, stop interfering. And I do think there's an argument to be made here uh, because the U.S. is known for being one of these countries that interferes a lot in other countries' affairs, particularly in the Middle East over the last 20 years or so. And you might argue that there are reasons for that, especially with 9-11 uh, over the last, so the last 20 years or so, stepping in after 9-11 to help fight terrorism. But from like a libertarian perspective, of which a lot of Donald Trump supporters are, they see this as simply getting out of the Middle East and stopping the, the deaths of so many American soldiers in this region. And so if you're coming at it kind of from that perspective, I do think there's an argument to be made for stepping out and pulling troops out of the Middle East, out of Syria. But I would personally, and again, this is getting into my opinion, so take it with a grain of salt, I would personally think this is a mistake for a couple different reasons. First is that even if you're a libertarian, that does not necessarily excuse you from moral arguments. And I do think there is a, a very strong moral argument here to be on the side of, of the Kurds and to help protect them and support them in their fights because they have been there for us. And I think this sends a very poor strategic message as well. So in addition to the moral argument of protecting our friends who have always protected and helped us, there is a strategic argument here too that it looks like we are reneging on some of our alliances. And I think this is going to make it very difficult for other countries in the road, sorry, down the road, other countries, other groups to trust us because as the Kurds are starting to face a major offensive against one of their big enemies who essentially wants to wipe them out and more or less commit genocide against them, you're going to have some other countries kind of look at the U.S. with a, 
side eye, wondering if we're going to do the same thing to them and abandon them. Third, I don't think this is necessarily the right time to do it. Now, you might argue that we should not have gone in in the first place, but I do think there is an argument that ISIS necessitated us being there. And further, I think it's a huge mistake to look at ISIS as a completely defeated entity. It is true that they were knocked back greatly. They have lost massive amounts of territory, but pretty much all reports are that they still exist, that they are regrouping kind of behind the scenes, underground. They are not defeated. I think that's a big mistake. Uh, Donald Trump and quite a few others have talked about them as if they are, but there are Islamic State fighters that still exist out there. Uh, not only free ones, but also ones that are captured and imprisoned behind bars. And a lot of these fighters are in the hands of Kurds who could use our support in, in keeping them in prison. And so giving Turkey kind of the green light to attack the Kurds could lead to a breakout of a lot of these captured ISIS prisoners by breaking the stronghold that the Kurds have in some of these areas. Now, of the, there are roughly something like ten to 12,000 ISIS fighters that have been captured and are currently in prison. Of those ten to 12,000, the U.S. military can pretty much guarantee the continued detention of a grand total of two of them. That means the rest of them, actually those two are, are British detainees who had joined ISIS. Those are the only two that we actually took custody of. The Kurds, though, mainly hold the rest of them. And so having bombardments on their prisons is not a good thing for the United States because it will release ISIS fighters. And in fact, there was an example of this. Just, just recently, there was a Turkish bombardment on a prison in a town called... Uh, Kamishli, I'm probably butchering that, uh, but it's a, a Kurdish-run prison, and five captives apparently did escape from this. And so I think this is a very bad dis decision to just stand, stand aside, let Turkey do whatever they want here. And there are other fighters who have been released or, or escaped as well. There were there was an attack where about 500 female detainees that had connections to, the, to ISIS that escaped uh, after a Turkish airstrike recently as well. And so this is a, a case where if the U.S. stayed pedal to the metal, you know, we essentially had victory in the bag. Now, maybe we weren't quite there yet, although you, you could argue nominally, yes, they are defeated for the moment. But we're essentially, by doing this, giving away that victory and, and risking it completely backfiring on us. And this will ultimately end up helping several of our... I don't say enemies, it's probably too strong of a word, but some of the countries that we have been notably up against recently, including Russia, uh, Iran is going to benefit from this because the U.S. presence in northern Syria has kind of blocked Iran from moving into territory with uh, its, its allies in Lebanon. And so this removal of U.S. troops from the region could have some pretty massive effects on Russia, Syria, Iran, Turkey, the growth, of, the regrowth of ISIS. If we look back at how ISIS was formed in the first place, it largely came from our, our move into Iraq and the removal of Saddam Hussein, which I think you could argue it was a good thing, but then we turned around and immediately started pulling troops out way too fast. I think you, I think we can make arguments as to whether or not we should have been in there in the first place and go either way on that. But once we were there, pulling out troops way too fast created a vacuum and power needs or power will always step into a vacuum. And ISIS rose in that vacuum. And so I really strongly worry here that by creating a new vacuum, we went in, quote unquote, defeated ISIS, and now we're kind of leaving a new vacuum where 
plenty of other groups are going to be fighting for, we could create a new vacuum here where a group like ISIS or even ISIS itself will kind of re-rise into that, that mode. And of course, as I said, it kind of sets up the Kurds for, for being attacked or they will move towards different allies. And I, this is another argument that I think some people have made. I've seen this made on Twitter a couple times that, you know, we're not really abandoning the Kurds to destruction because they will just find new allies. But I'm not sure that's something we really want. I mean, the Kurds have been our most consistent ally for decades. They are really good allies. And by pushing them away from us, we're losing one of really only two major allies we have in the region. And by turning away from one of them, I think that's a, a very risky call. The Kurds are kind of finding themselves in a very difficult situation and they're going to be turning to Syria, in particular, the Syrian regime, so Assad, for help, essentially pivoting away from an alliance with the United States and more towards Assad. And as I said, this is going to end up helping Russia. Russia is allied with Assad. Iran is allied with Assad. And by pushing them into the arms of groups like, or I say countries like Russia and Iran, I think this is taking a major, major risk that we're going to really regret for a very long time. And before I kind of close out this first part of the episode too, I want to get back a little bit to the moral arguments. By turning our back on the Kurds, this is going to do irreparable damage to, U to the U.S.'s reputation in the world. This is, this is a betrayal. I, I don't think we can really see it as anything other than that. And a betrayal of, of an ally, a betrayal of really the, the only democratic government in the Middle East outside of Israel. Obviously, they don't have their own country, but the Kurds have an autonomous region in this area, particularly the region in Syria is called Rojava. It basically, that's a word that means the land where the sun sets. But this is a, an area that's essentially a, a test of democracy in the Middle East. Uh, they are, they're running something called confederalism. It's basically a kind of local units of, of these kind of autonomous Kurdish regions that all retain autonomy themselves, but come together in a federation of sorts for major decisions. And within kind of each region, you have local elected councils that organize everything from like garbage collection to public health and safety issues. And this is this actually sets the Kurds really apart from pretty much every other government across the Middle East where power is concentrated very much at the top. I mean, you, I mean just use Syria as an example because that's what we're talking about. Bashar al-Assad in Syria is a, an authoritarian who has crushed his opponents over the course of this eight-year war. You know, countries like Egypt, have, they have military governments. Saudi Arabia has a king. Jordan has a king. Uh, but this region of in Syria where the Kurds are, this Rojava region, is unique. It's direct democracy. They have term limits. They have gender equality in government. Kurdish women fight alongside other units. Have, there's actually an all-female militia that fights ISIS as soldiers, you know, frontline battle type things. They have freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of equality, religion and languages and ethnicities across this area. And this actually is more or less in effect. And so by abandoning them, we're also abandoning kind of a, a democratic enclave that sits. Again, they're not their own country. And so we have to take this with a little bit of grain of salt. But this is a democratic enclave in a very authoritarian region that I think really could stand our support. I know I don't take many stances on this podcast, but this is one case where I I really think we have to because betraying the Kurds is going to send a message to the rest of the United States that the U.S. can't be trusted. And I think this is a major, major mistake. I mean, unless you're hardcore libertarian. Uh, and again, I understand the libertarian argument, 
not trying to knock it too hard. But unless you're hardcore libertarian, I think Republicans, Democrats, we have to understand that the Kurds are our friends. They're our allies. They're one of our only allies in this area. They have fought effectively. They have sacrificed for United States purposes and goals in fighting ISIS. They have fought alongside us. Tens of thousands of them have died fighting alongside or for U.S. goals. And I I just, I, I don't like this move by Donald Trump. I think this is going to create uh, a tinderbox in the Middle East in this particular area that essentially sets up the Kurds to either be massacred by the Turks or to push them into the arms of other allies in the region who may not be nearly as friendly to the United States. And on top of that, too, even if this somehow resolves itself, I think it's going to cost us down the road in trying to form other alliances in other regions as well. Now, I do want to just quickly end this by offering kind of one counter perspective. And this is the idea that this fight between the Turks and the Kurds is essentially an internal fight. Uh, and getting involved would only really get us more and more intertwined in Middle Eastern politics, which we don't really need to be involved in. We've already been way too involved. You could argue that since the United States has gotten involved post 9-11, things in the Middle East have gotten way, way worse in terms of overall wars. Now, I think you could push back on that a little bit because we did end up taking out bin Laden. We took out Saddam Hussein, who were pretty terrible people. But there's also been major, major civil wars. And from a kind of pure power politics move, you can kind of see where they're coming from on this. So many people, hundreds of thousands of people have died on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Trillions of dollars have been have been poured into this. And we've kind of created a cycle that has no real seeming end. And again, I don't want to put all this at the feet of the United States. I, the Middle East had problems long before we got there. They'll have problems long after we leave. But there is this kind of argument that the U.S. has no dog in this fight. And we should step out and we should get out of Syria. We should get out of Iraq, Afghanistan. Let them sort it out themselves. And I don't want to shirk away from that argument, if that makes sense. I, I don't want to, to just dismiss it offhand. I don't agree with it. I, I think there is a moral imperative for us to be involved when cases of genocide and violence and unrest and massive violent instability exist. But mm, it's, this, this is just a tough area. And when you look at the United States' place in the world, we're what's called a, a world hegemon. Now you can quibble about that term a little bit, but essentially means we're the, the strongest world, the strongest country in the world pretty much by a good distance. And while that distance has shrunk recently, we are still considered the most powerful in the world for in a variety of categories. You know, there is a little bit of an imperative here for a world hegemon to do its best to step in and keep the peace and stop things like genocide. There is a moral argument here. If we see a genocide happening, we should step in and stop it. And the U.S. has not done a great job of this over the years. And I, I just, I don't, I don't think this is a, a good move from a moral perspective, from a foreign policy perspective, strategic perspective. And, and I very much worry about where this might be leading us uh, down the road, both in the Middle East, from like a Middle East perspective, from the Middle East as a, from like a U.S. perspective, and then also kind of going forward on on the world stage.
I, I just worry about what this about what the results of this are going to be. And I really, really dislike abandoning some of our, our best friends in the world who have loved us. I mean, literally loved us for for decades. I mean, once we went in and ousted Saddam Hussein, you know, there there were reports. I mean, I have a friend who goes to Iraqi Kurdistan every once in a while, and and he talks about you go in some of these homes and they have portraits of George Bush on the wall because they're so grateful to the United States for overthrowing Saddam Hussein, who had been tormenting and torturing and killing them. So, I mean, this is a people group that truly, truly loved the United States. And man, just stepping aside, essentially, on the eve of when we knew Turkey was launching an offensive, uh, even if we don't necessarily support the offensive, not stepping in there just feels like a major betrayal. And I, I just really worry about it. Uh, but anyway, with, with that, I've gone way too long. Kind of my little mini rant there. I apologize. But I'm going to go ahead and play the commercial break. And then we're going to jump back in with uh, this, this kind of the replay of a previous episode where I talk about who the Kurds are from like a people group perspective. Talk about you know them. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy that. It was a really good episode at the time. Really, really well received. And as I said, this is the largest ethnic group in the world without their own country. So they do actually play a pretty important role on the, on the world stage. Uh, so just stick with me. And after the commercial break, we'll jump into that. Thanks so much for uh, being with me this week. And I'll talk to you later. Hi, everyone. That's right. You've tuned in to another episode of the hot new podcast, Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kenny, and I'm real excited to be here with you guys for today's episode. Instead of exploring an event that's taking place in the world today, I'm going to do a spotlight on a specific people group that's been in the news a lot over the last few years, and that is the Kurds, or the Kurdish people. To kick things off, it's important to understand that the Kurds are an ethnic group. They're not a religious group like you might talk about in the Middle East with the Sunnis and the Shias or the Karajites or the Druzi or any of these others. The Kurds are an ethnic-based group. And in fact, they're actually the largest ethnic group in the world that doesn't have their own country. And that's partly why they've been in the news so much of the last decade or so. The Kurds globally have a population of anywhere from 30 to 40 million people. It's a little hard to tell exactly. But the grand majority of them can be found across four countries. That's Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and northern Syria. And the borders that kind of span those four countries, if you do kind of a big circle around the Kurdish territories... Frequently, you'll hear that area called Kurdistan, or sometimes Greater Kurdistan. There are a fair amount of Kurdish diaspora people in other parts of the world. You find a fair amount in the former Soviet Union, Western Turkey, and Istanbul. You also have seen some pop up in places in the West, particularly Germany. But the thing is that the Kurds are not the majority people group in any of these countries. They are significant minorities in those four that said, they are the majority in an autonomous region that they do kind of govern themselves in Iraq, called Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, they pretty much run themselves there. You can find their own border crossings, their own governing bodies, but they are still technically a part of Iraq and answer to the Iraqi government, even though the Iraqi government largely leaves them alone. So they are the majority population in Iraqi Kurdistan, but that's not a recognized country on the global stage. Now, the Kurds have hit the news waves many times over the years, here and there. Probably the most famous is their relationship with Saddam Hussein. Uh, he famously gassed and persecuted and killed a bunch of the Kurdish population in northern Iraq. But they've also popped up in recent years with the Syrian civil war. A lot of the refugees that are leaving Syria right now are Syrian Kurds. And as a result of this conflict, a lot of the current seekers of asylum in places in the West, like I said, Germany is probably the highest, but there are others as well, are of Kurdish descent. 
We've even seen this to a smaller extent here in the United States. We've had quite a few Kurdish immigrants show up here over the years, uh, in particular in the 70s, but carrying through through today. And actually, of particular note, because if those of you who know me, I'm based in Tennessee right now, the largest Kurdish community in the United States is actually in Tennessee. It's in Nashville. There's actually a, a community there called Little Kurdistan. And the Kurdish population there is estimated to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 to 12,000. Now, ethnically, there is some debate about this, but the Kurds probably come from a handful of ethnic tribes and other groups in the northwestern Iran region. And most Kurds consider themselves ancestors of the Medes. The Medes were an ancient Iranian people group that lived in that northwestern Iran area, probably in the neighborhood of 1000 BC or so. And they really emerged as a dominant people group in the 800, maybe 700 BC. But early documentation of these groups and kind of where the Kurds came from are hard to come by. Uh, the usage of the term Kurd in those very early years was probably much more of a social term, which referenced nomads that lived in an area rather than any sort of concrete ethnic group. The ethnicity part came about later. Now we do see them start to become a much bigger deal going into the medieval period, and they kind of appear fairly sporadically in a lot of these Arabic sources from that time period. At the time though, the term was still not used consistently for a specific people group, but rather kind of a group of tribes. But this ethnic identity started to materialize during this Middle Ages period. And by the time you get to the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, we're, we're in AD now, you can really find some very clear evidence of the Kurds being their own people group. During this time period, there were quite a few different Kurdish dynasties that were founded and flourished and ruled the kind of Kurdish areas and the surrounding neighborhoods. Armenia, Azerbaijan, Egypt, Syria, you know, those are the modern terms for it. But by the 11th century, a lot of those Kurdish dynasties had started to crumble because the Turks invaded. And the Kurdish areas became kind of incorporated under the, the Seljuk Turk dynasty. Some of the people groups of the Kurds did manage to kind of reestablish themselves in the 12th century under the leadership of a man named Saladin. Now, Saladin is probably one of the most famous military commanders of all time, and he led a lot of the military campaigns against the Crusaders in the Middle East. And to this day, Saladin is probably considered the most famous Kurd in all of history. Now, over the next several centuries, there's a lot of things that happen to this people group, but I'm going to skip ahead and jump to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was a Muslim caliphate, more or less, that ruled across Southeast Europe, West Asia, and North Africa from like the 14th century all the way up until the early 20th century, actually, the 1900s. It was founded in Turkey and was often thought of as kind of a Turkish empire. But during the 16th and 17th centuries, when it was at its strongest power under the reign of a man by the name of Suleiman, this was a huge multinational, multilingual empire that controlled a large, large chunk of the world. It was one of the larger empires that we've ever seen. And it was one of the key players on the world stage, kind of connecting a lot of the Eastern world with the Western world. And in fact, they actually played a pretty big role in World War I. They joined on the side of Germany. They allied with Germany in the early 20th century and joined World War I on the side of the Central Powers. Now, the Ottomans are important to understanding the Kurds because during this time period, the Kurdish people were kind of integrated into the Ottomans. Now, they were never fully assimilated, but most of the Kurdish rule did kind of fall under the Ottoman control. Now, the Ottomans were not super interested in interfering with local 
politics and local issues. So a lot of the local chiefs and leaders of the Kurds were installed as the governors or the governorships of the Ottomans. So they were able to kind of largely maintain some of their original structure, but they were part of the Ottoman Empire. They were integrated fairly successfully into that. But in the late 1800s, you start to see the Kurdish nationalist movement take root. And you start to see a couple uprisings. There was a powerful Kurdish landowner. He was head of a powerful family. His name was Sheikh Ubadullah. And he basically demanded political autonomy, independence for the Kurds. They wanted their own state without any sort of interference from the Turk Ottomans or the Persians who were also in the area. And this uprising was quashed fairly quickly by the Ottomans. It was, it was suppressed. But this Kurdish nationalist movement managed to really take root and started to grow. And so when World War I happened, the Ottomans again joined on the side of Germany, so they lost. And when they did, a lot of their territory got partitioned off, and the Kurdish nationalist movement really emerged after World War I. And so through the teens and 20s and 30s, you see a lot of revolts by Kurdish groups. Now, the Turks responded by brutally, brutally quashing them to the point where there was almost an ethnic cleansing of the Kurds and actually of the Armenians during this time period as well. And so the Turks either sought to exterminate the Kurds or to deport them, and they sent them to a lot of different areas. And mostly the reason for this is they were trying to weaken a lot of the political influence that the Kurds have by mostly taking them out of their, their kind of ancestral lands where their people are from and then dispersing them into smaller communities throughout the area. And by the end of World War I, and kind of especially going into the next few years, there have been something like 600 to 700,000 Kurds that have been forcibly taken from their homes and moved elsewhere. But we still saw this undercurrent of Kurdish nationalism, and revolt after revolt takes place. You get into the 20s and 30s, and there's quite a few large-scale revolts that start to take place still in these Kurdish regions. And as the Middle East was carved up during this time period, largely by the winning powers in the world wars, uh, you saw the Kurds get divided across multiple borders. As I mentioned, there's four main countries that they're divided across, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. But this didn't solve many problems, and throughout, you get into the 50s, 60s, 70s, we see this Kurdish nationalist movement continue to grow, uh, it continues to evolve and take shape. You start to see some militant separatist groups pop up. You have the PKK, they were kind of a 70s movement that started out as kind of Marxist-Leninist, but largely have spun into kind of a Kurdish nationalist group, and they still exist today. They're actually involved in Syria, in the Syrian civil war. They're considered a terrorist group by a lot of the world right now as well. But this, this Kurdish nationalism has really still stuck through, and we see it even today. Now, the, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the Kurds are considered the largest ethnic group in the world without a state. And that is true. But because of the way that they kind of run themselves in several of these areas, they are almost like proto-states. They run semi-autonomously in Iraq. They have a region in northeastern Syria that they kind of run semi-autonomously. Now, this has caused many problems over the years. As I mentioned, Saddam Hussein fam famously gassed and persecuted a lot of the Kurds. The Kurds have seen a lot of violence against them under uh, Turkey's more recent rule as well. The word Kurd or Kurdistan or Kurdish have actually been banned by the Turkish government. The Kurdish language was prohibited in public life. It's actually been prohibited in private life too, but you can't really enforce that very well. And through the 80s and 90s, you had that PKK, that militant group, and the Turkish military were actually engaged in almost an open civil war between the two. And this nationalist movement, this nationalist fervor among the Kurds, 
can really be found in all areas. Now, the one place, though, that you'd see it the least is probably the country of Iran, uh, to the point where actually there's a fairly large number of Iranian Kurds that show zero interest in any sort of nationalism. Largely, these are the Kurds of the Shia faith, and I'll get to Kurdish religion in a minute. But that means they tend to agree ideologically and religiously with the government in Tehran, which is a Shia country. And so you really only see the Kurdish nationalist movement in Iran and kind of the fringe areas, the peripheral Kurdish regions, like Kurdish-specific regions. Now, the fourth country I mentioned is Syria, and Syria is a place where there's a huge civil war going on right now. If you guys tune in next week, actually the next two weeks, I'll be doing a little bit on the Syrian civil war. But the Kurds do account for about 9% of Syria's population, largely in that kind of northern quadrant, northeastern quadrant. And when the Syrian civil war broke out, the Kurds became a fairly significant member of that fight. All right, let's move on to some more cultural elements. Now, as I mentioned early on, frequently they get referenced alongside a lot of religious groups, but they are an ethnic group. And traditionally, kind of as a whole, the Kurds adhere to a lot of different religions, different ideologies and belief systems. It's probably the most religiously diverse group of that entire area of the world. And this includes faiths like Islam. Islam is probably the largest, but you see uh, Alevism, you see Yazidis, you see the Zoroastrians. There's actually quite a few Christian Kurds as well. And let's talk about a couple of those in more detail. Now, the majority of Kurds are Muslim, and most of those are Sunni Muslim. But there is a fairly significant minority who are Shia as well. And they do tend to get along fairly well, despite a lot of the uh, disagreements between Sunnis and Shias more abroad. And then also among the Kurdish Muslims, you do see a higher prevalence of the, the Sufis which are more of a, a mystical practicing branch of Islam. Now, when you take this Shia branch, combine some of the elements of Sufis, the Sufism, you get this more mystical faith called Alevism. And so Alevism is kind of this 13th century mystical twist on Islam. Uh, you tend to find it in Turkey as well, but also, again, a fair amount among the Kurds. But they are kind of a mix between some of the traditional Islam and a lot of the more pre-Islamic religious beliefs, some of the beliefs of the, the local customs and cultures and some of the religions that existed in the area before Islam. Now, another faith that kind of predates Islam among the Kurds in this area are the Yazidis or the Yazdanism. Now, this is, a, again, pre-Islamic. It's kind of a native religion. Some people actually claim it's the original religion of the Kurds. But over time, it's kind of morphed and it actually combines aspects of several other faiths. You find Islam, Christianity, Judaism elements in this. You also find some Zoroastrianism, which I'll talk about in just a second. And Yazidis are a very close-knit community. In fact, if you marry outside the Yazidi faith, you're actually automatically considered to no longer be Yazidi. The key thing here with the Yazidis is that they're sometimes even referred to as the cult of angels. And that's because they believe once God created the world, he placed the world under the care, under the protection of seven angels, including one whose name is Melek Taos. Uh, he's considered the peacock angel. I don't really know where that comes from, but he is the, the world ruler of the current earth. Now, the backstory that they have for this peacock angel, Melek Taos, actually has some resemblance to the stories of a fallen angel, fallen from grace and God, which you might recognize in Christian tradition as Lucifer or Satan. And so because of this similarity, a lot of other monotheistic religions in the area call 
Melictaus Satan, and they refer to the Yazidis as devil worshippers. This isn't quite true because the Yazidis believe that this fallen angel actually reconciles with God and is, is no longer considered to be a fallen angel, but this perception of them as devil worshippers has continued and has actually led them to be persecuted quite strictly. In fact, beginning in 2014, they were one of the key targets of ISIS, the Islamic State, in its kind of effort to rid the area of any sort of non-Islamic influences. And so the Yazidis have actually been uh, widely, brutally slaughtered across the region in the last few years, to the point where foreign countries, including the United States actually, have run specific missions to rescue Yazidi populations from ISIS and the brutality that they bring. Now, the Yazidis, despite having some similarities to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all kind of mixed together, they do have some more unusual beliefs as well. In particular, one of their key beliefs from the time of creation is that they are descendants of Adam. You'll notice I, I said Adam and not Adam and Eve. And that's because they believe that before Adam and Eve had children, Adam managed to reproduce on his own a son by the name of Shahid bin Jer. And so this son is where you get what they believe is the ancestor of the Yazidis. So they have some kind of odd things with this. And this is the reason that the Yazidis give for not intermarrying with other non-Yazidis. And they don't accept converts as well. You're kind of either born into Yazidism or not. Further, they actually do believe in reincarnation as well. And that over time, over lifespans, you kind of continually purify your soul, continual reincarnation within the, the group of, the, of Yazidis. But if something goes wrong, you can be expelled from the Yazidi community. And it's believed that when this happens, you can never convert back to the faith. And because of this, their religion is considered very pure. This is kind of ironic given that they seem to borrow elements from a lot of different religions. But they even take this to the point of not having external contact with non-Yazidis. They do allow it to an extent, but too much contact is considered pollution of the Yazidi faith. And so because of this, Yazidis have frequently avoided some of the more national duties of like military service or living amongst other faiths. Uh, they don't borrow things from, from outsiders. But this has lessened a little bit in more recent years. Still, because of a lot of these elements, there's a lot of mystery surrounding the Yazidi population, the Yazidi beliefs, but because of the persecution they've been facing, we have had more contact with them recently in the form of mostly rescuing them from ISIS or other extremist groups seeking to persecute them. Next up among Kurdish religious groups are the Zoroastrians. This is actually considered one of the world's oldest religions. It is monotheistic, single god, and dates back to as far as the second millennium BC. So we're talking about 2,000 years before Christ, which makes it one of the first monotheistic faiths in the history of, of humanity. Now, largely Zoroastrianism is considered the ancient religion of Persia, which we think of as like Iraq and Iran today. So Zoroastrianism can really be best summed up by three core values, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. They consider themselves a very moral people group. They believe in the natural elements. They're very ecologically focused, protecting nature. They refrain from a lot of pollution. But their key kind of theological component is the belief in what they call the holy immortals. These are uh, kind of angel-like beings, I guess, that are identified as taking on certain aspects of what a good person should be. Things like truth and righteousness, power and just rule, uh, long life, immortality. They're also quite big on the duality of the world in terms of good and evil. Very big concepts in Zoroastrianism. 
And you see other very familiar elements pop up in here as well. The idea of the golden rule, uh, heaven and hell, again, the duality there, even the concept of free will. But despite a lot of these familiar concepts that you might find in other religions as well, Zoroastrianism has really started to decline since about the Middle Ages. There are not many of them left. You do still find some in this Iraqi Kurdistan region in the Kurds. You also find some still in Iran. But actually primarily where you find the Zoroastrians today are in India. And like Yazidism, they also have this belief nowadays where you really can't convert to it. You're either born into the faith or you're not. And so partly because of this, but also partly because of the spread of other faiths like Islam and Christianity, especially through that region, Zoroastrianism has really declined. Now, the last faith of the Kurds that I'm going to touch on, there are several other minority ones, but are the Christians. So Kurdish Christianity probably goes back all the way to the first century, post-Christ, first century CE. Ancient tradition suggests that the apostle Andrew was the one to bring the faith of Christianity to the Kurds. Now, the majority of Kurds did adopt Islam after the Arab conquest during one of the empires in there, but there were a lot of Kurdish converts to Christianity even during this time period, and we've actually seen it even rise in more recent years. Parts of the Bible were actually translated into the Kurdish language in the 1850s, and actually just in the 21st century, in about the year 2000, there was a Kurdish-speaking Church of Christ that was established. It's the first evangelical Kurdish church in that area. It's in, it's in Iraq. And since this time period, we've actually seen a pretty big wave of Kurds converting to Christianity in the Iraqi Kurdistan region. Part of this is due to the fact that they have a much closer tie to the West than a lot of other regions, and this is because when the United States invaded Iraq after 9-11, we overthrew Saddam Hussein, and the Kurds really became the United States' big ally in the region outside of Israel because they were the United States was seen as the saviors of their people. Saddam Hussein had been gassing them, persecuting them, killing them, and the United States came in and saved them. And so there is actually a fairly big connection now between the Iraqi Kurdistan area and the United States. There are mission trips that go there. I actually know somebody who goes there about every year or so to help with a summer camp that they do for Kurdish youth. And so today there's probably anywhere between five and 6,000 Kurdish Christians. But because there are so many different faiths in the Kurdish population, and despite having so many very fundamentalist extremist groups in the whole area, the Kurdish people are considered to be one of the few cultures in the Middle East that truly practice religious tolerance. They're one of the most tolerant and religiously equal governments and people groups in the whole area. And in the same vein as this religious tolerance that really sets Kurdistan apart from a lot of the neighbors in the area, there's this story that after World War II, when Israel became a nation, there were a fair amount of Kurdish Jews uh, who left Kurdistan, moved back to Israel, and there are quite a few stories about their Muslim neighbors from when they lived in the Kurdish area being very distraught over the loss of their Jewish neighbors and actually maintaining synagogues, in some cases for, for decades, in honor of their friends who had left to go back to Israel. That kind of thing really speaks to what the religious tolerance is like in these Kurdish regions where they really do seem to be very open and welcoming to people of all faiths and to people of a lot of different backgrounds as well, ethnically, religiously, and otherwise. And this probably comes from the long history of suffering that the Kurdish people have gone through, that they have this kind of bond or kinship or brotherhood that they've developed over the years because of the persecution. And so they tend to accept pretty much anybody who falls under that category. But they are noted for being particularly welcoming of all kinds of faiths. Now, one kind of final tidbit I think is a really fun fact about the Kurds 
is their language because while most Kurds speak something called Northern Kurdish or sometimes called Kermanji, uh, they'll also hear Sorani, which is another Kurdish dialect. But there's actually a small population of Kurds that still speak Aramaic, which if you're a biblical scholar at all, you know that that's the language most people believe that Jesus Christ spoke. And so that's kind of a, a little fun tidbit. There's not many people who speak Aramaic anymore. Now, I'm going to go ahead and end this episode with a couple of little fun facts. I'm just going to spit, spit them out bullet style. Um, the Kurds are culturally pretty close to the Iranian people. They celebrate things like Nuraz, which is their New Year's Day. It's very similar to the Iranian New Year's Day. It takes place in March. They're really big into things like folklore. Uh, largely, that's transmitted through song, uh, sometimes through speeches. But they have a lot of folklore about nature and animals. Uh, they have the mythological creatures. Probably the most common one that you'll find is about the fox. You'll also notice that the Kurds are very well known for being handy uh, with like crafts and things. Kurdish weaving is one of the most famous in the world. They're very well known for their rugs and their bags that they make. You can also find things like chessboards, jewelry, various ornaments and instruments that, are come, that come from the Kurdish people. In recent years, we've seen the Kurds get more into things like music and dance and cinema. Most of the themes of the cinema are around poverty and hardship, a lot of the history there. But in the last few years or so, we've seen a handful of Kurdish directors that have become very critically acclaimed. Sports-wise, the Kurds are very big into football, soccer, that is. Uh, now, because they don't have their, in their own state, they don't really have a team in FIFA or anything like that. But they do have a team that represents Iraqi Kurdistan and goes around and plays teams. And the Kurdish clubs that take place in the Iraqi soccer leagues have actually done quite well. They've won the Iraqi Premier League a couple times recently. You also see Kurds do quite well at things like Taekwondo, wrestling, boxing, weightlifting. They've even won a couple medals in the Olympics. And finally, probably one of the most interesting tidbits is that tattoos are quite widespread among the Kurds. And this is weird because despite having such a large Sunni Islam population under which tattoos, permanent tattoos, are not permissible, we see a lot of very ancient traditional style tattoos among the Kurds. Most of these are thought to have come from pre-Islamic times, a lot of very traditional elements to them, a lot of traditional symbolism, especially religious symbolism. And actually, a kind of an interesting note too, tattoos are more prevalent among the women, among the Kurds, than the men. And a lot of these tattoos have meanings about protecting against evil, uh, illnesses, those type of things, or the specific tribal affiliation that that particular individual belongs to among the Kurds. But I think that's all the fun facts I'm going to hit. Uh, we're about out of time, so I'm going to go ahead and end the episode. Please, if you're really interested in this, the Kurds are a fascinating people group. There's a lot of really interesting stuff here. I could probably speak on this for hours. It's a part of the world that's very welcoming towards Americans in particular because of our role in ousting Saddam Hussein. I have a friend who's been there, and he told me that when he walks into some of these Kurdish homes, they have portraits of George W. Bush on the wall because they're so grateful for being liberated from Hussein. So they tend to very much like Americans. It's one of the few places in the Middle East where you're going to go and really find that. Right now, obviously, in the last couple of years with the Islamic State problems that are going on, it may not be the safest spot until that is all settled. But these Kurdish regions are a place that are definitely on my bucket list to visit at some point in my life, and I think they really should be on yours too. If you're really interested in them, please do more research. This really is an interesting people group, and they're right on the verge of getting their quest for independence that's been going on for at least a century or more, especially in Iraq and Syria with the, the conflict and turmoil that's been taking place there. Down the road, I'd love to do another episode about the Kurds, talking about them in more detail, but hopefully this gave you an idea of who these people are, where they came from, what their role is in the Middle East, and spark some interest in them as a whole for you. 
Tune in next week for a religious look at the background of the Syrian Civil War. And then the week after that will be part two of the Syrian Civil War. And we'll do a little bit more on the political side. And I'll actually talk about the Kurds more in that time as well and kind of their relationship to what's going on in Syria. So that should be really interesting. As always, if you're interested in continuing this conversation, find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. That's the name I write fiction novels under. I'm also on Twitter at Justin R. underscore Kinney. Follow me in both places. And if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast or advertising on here, please hit me up. I'd be happy to talk with you about that possibility. But until next time, I'm Justin Kinney. This is Nutshell Politics, and I am out.